Sometime later, the brook that Elijah was near dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've instructed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I could have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And then our second reading is from Luke, chapter 4, verses 24 to 30. And this is Jesus speaking. <coughs> Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in, Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath 
in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, some uh, months ago, I came across a survey. I quite like graphs, quite like data. It's the old mathematician in me. Graphs are dangerous. Statistics are dangerous because they can be made, you know, to make uh, any truth you claim to be true evident. But I think this is true. Here's the graph on the screen. It's, it's a religious study of the beliefs in the United Kingdom in recent decades. The graph uh, is a little bit, <laughs> the scale is a little bit unclear, but trust me, it is there in the original. Um, but what this graph shows, over the last 50 years, things, they have changed in the United Kingdom. We were once part of what was broadly called a Christian country. Christianity was the, the dominant, the, the majority religion in England, Scotland, Ireland, and even Wales. And, uh, but in the last 50 years, there has been a change afoot that people who would say, I am an Anglican, I attend a Catholic church, I am an ardently non-Christian, that has uh, become a decreasing trend that you can see from the graph. And what has happened, if you look at the red line, the people who are no religious affiliation, they're called knowns, no religious affiliation, they have increased dramatically. That's in the last uh, census in 2011, 2018, 2021. There's evidence too. In other words, those people who say, I have uh, no religious uh, uh, affliction, is the wrong word, uh, connection to the uh, mainline Christian tradition, they are greatly on the increase. 53% of uh, the United Kingdom say, actually, I would rather be identified as someone who has no religious um, conviction and what that means is not that people who don't believe in God believe in nothing I came across this statement in a book I've been reading recently on the next slide and it says this Deepak Lal is an economist and he says this everybody claims that after the age of Christianity we're going to enter into the age of atheism where people don't believe in God of any sort and he says, whereas it's perfectly clear that we're entering the age of polytheism, that's a big word, this is what it means, everybody has their own gods now. In other words, if you stop believing in the God of the Bible, it's not that you believe in nothing, it's that you believe in something else. It's not that you believe in nothing, it's you believe in something else. And so the increase in Rastafarianism, the increase in Jediism, the increase in a whole host of different religions in the United Kingdom. Jediism is a true thing, I assure you. 175,000 people identify as followers of the Jedi religion. Um, it's true. Well, that statement is true. Jedi, Judaism, or Jediism is not. But people believe in anything now. And we need to recognize that we're no longer in a Christian country. And the Christian landscape has changed, and the religious landscape is far broader than it's ever been before. So the question becomes not, uh, do I want to have faith? It's far more better, it's far more clearer to say, what faith do you have? It's not, do I want to believe in God? Rather, it's which God do you want to believe in? Which God do you believe in? Which faith do you have? Which religion do you follow? Which truth do you identify with? 
These are questions that no previous generation has had to engage in to the same degree. Now, how are we going to navigate this changing landscape as Christians? How are we going to be honest and say the uh, reality has changed in our modern generation, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not? Believe it or not, we need to turn to the Bible. And in the Bible, there was a man called Elijah. We meet him in 1 Kings 17. It's not the first time that uh, there's been a culture with many different gods to worship. If you go back to 1 Kings 17, you find that this is a, a, a time and a generation that the God of the Bible is very marginalized, at least on the surface of things. Elijah was and is a great prophet of God. We meet him in 1 Kings 17. And he's being driven out from the, uh, the land of Israel because there is a new earthly king on the throne and a new queen. And they are both determined to bring a great uh, tradition of following God to an end. And it's now the time to, to create a society where anything goes when it comes to religious convictions. But Elijah is a man who will teach us how to navigate the times in which he lived and in which we live too. In the 8th century BC, but also in the 21st century AD. Elijah and Elisha that followed him will teach us how to discern the spirits, to discern the times. Elijah will teach us about the one true God. And only if we know him will we see the, uh, the paucity of the other gods who claim to um, be someone that we should follow. I want to introduce you to the character called Elijah. Look down at 1 Kings 17 verse 7. Sometimes later the brook dried up. Where are we? 8th century BC Israel. There's a new king on the throne. His name is Ahab. And if you see on the, the map behind me, there has been a, a political marriage. The, uh, the king of Israel has married the, uh, the queen, the princess from a town of Sidon which is up to the north. I've, I've highlighted, highlighted there with the red arrow, Zarephath. Zarephath is the key location for our story. But um, the queen of Tyre and Sidon is connected. And her name is Jezebel. Jezebel, after the marriage, brought with her a determination to destroy any prophets of God, including Elijah. Once they were married, they went on a systematic campaign, not, not just to promote uh, that they should be leader of the Tory party, something far more serious, which is we want to create a pluralistic society and we will bring with us 400 prophets of Baal and we will bring with us 450 prophets of Asherah and it's time to eradicate the true God of Israel and we want to promote a pluralistic worship system. We're going to throw out, and those we can't throw out, we're, we're going to kill any prophets of the one true God of the Bible. And we'll do all we can to create a culture of pluralism. Elijah, who we meet in chapter 17, verse 1, is the last functioning prophet of God. And he shows up, and he says this word. God speaks to him, and he says to the prophet Ahab, uh, the king Ahab, as the Lord lives, chapter 17, verse 1, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. 
the one true God who lives says there will be no more rain, there will be a time of famine to follow for as long as I say so because I am the one true God and the gods who you're tempted to follow, the gods of the crops, the gods of the storm, Baal and Asherah, they were gods of agriculture. They are not the one true God and I will show you that I am God alone. I am the one who will send rain I'm the one who sends prosperity and fruitfulness to, to wombs and to crops alike. I will show you that I and I alone are the gods of the heavens, which is what is so important about 1 Kings 18 that we'll look at next week. We'll see who the god of the heavens and the god of the crop truly is. Famine descends. That's 1 Kings 17 verse 3. And in verse 3, we see that Elijah now starts to move to the Kirith Ravine. And then he finds some water. He lives there for a while, and he's facing starvation. But in verses 3 to 6, before we slow down, God speaks to him and says, I will save you, Elijah. I will protect you, Elijah. But I will do that in an extraordinary way. You need to get your skates on and you need to go to a foreign land and meet a foreign lady. But what we'll see from verse 17 through to the end of the passage that we had read by Ruth, verse 24, we're going to engage with the one true God, the one true God who we meet and the one true God who introduces himself afresh to us versus the false ones. And as we get to know him afresh, we'll be able to discern our times and also the times of Elijah. So how do you know the one true God as opposed to other people that train, uh, claim to be God? How do you know? Well, this is what we learn about the one true God. The one true God is an outsider's God. Look at what he says, verse 8, as uh, Elijah is on the move. Verses 3 to 6, there's famine, but I will save you by taking you to a new place and to a new person. Verse 8, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. I want you to know, although we read that sentence and it's just a, an instruction that you would get from Google Maps, go up, take a right, take a left and get there. You've reached your destination, that sort of stuff. Elijah, in hearing the word from God, would be utterly dismayed and utterly shocked. How do we know? Luke 4 tells us so. The second reading we had, Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 25, there were many widows in Israel during this famine. But actually, God didn't say, Eli didn't say Elijah, hey, go to one of those widows. Elijah, this is where I want you to go, and this is the lady I want you to meet. I want you to go out of your normal purview, out of your normal country, and I want you to go to someone who ordinarily you would not have any time to give to. The Lord sent Elijah to none of them but to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. All those religious people that were listening to the lips of Jesus as he spoke were so incensed by what he said at the end of his first sermon that they drove him out of town, drove him to a high place, and they wanted to have him uh, thrown off the top until he walked through them by a word of authority and power. And just because they were shocked, how dare Jesus, you say something so scandalous, why would you tell someone we hold in so much high regard to leave your people and go to, go to a Gentile woman? Why would you tell someone to leave Israel and go to Sidon? Why would you tell someone to go to a woman and not a man? How dare you, Jesus? You deserve to die for this. Why were they so shocked? 
because of what Jesus said and of what God said to Elijah back in verse 8 of 1 Kings 17. I'm going to save you, Elijah, but in, in an extraordinary way. Cross boundaries. But don't just cross boundaries out of Israel. Don't just go to a pagan country. Don't just go to the place where Jezebel comes from, by the way. Don't just go to a place where idol worship was the norm. Don't just go to a place where there are racial outsiders, the Gentiles. But I want you to go to a woman as well. I want you to go and uh, be fed to and ministered to and saved by the actions of a woman and a pagan woman at that. Now, women, absolutely wrongly, at that time, had very, very little rights. They were virtually nothing but property. And God says, verse 8, get your skates on. I want you to go out of Israel, and I want you to go to a woman. And that's the point. God is saying, I want you to cross all the boundaries. I want you to uh, stomp on all religious conformity rules. Because in so doing, I reveal my character as a God that is not conformed to people's religious expectations. I mean, other gods, the gods of the nations say this, I will bless you if you obey my rules. And if you don't, I won't. That's how religion always works. But God says no. I'm a God of the outsider. And so break every rule that man has made. It doesn't matter if you uh, come to me as part of merit or gender or pedigree or class. I'm a God of grace, not of religion, not of boundaries. And so verse 14 and in verse 16, Elijah is saved by God working miraculously through this woman's kindness and mercy. And so verse 14 and 16, you notice this prophetic word from God through the lips of Elijah, this word of faith that just says almost as a throwaway statement, verse 15, so she went away and did as Elijah had told her. That's a remarkable statement of this woman who's coming to the end of her resources. She's about to die because of famine. Her son is about to die because they're on their last resources. No food stamps left, no crops to harvest. This is all they have left. And Elijah, the man of God, says, I want you to take God at his word. And I want you to feed me first before you. And guess what? There will be enough and there will keep be enough. Because God is a God of miracles. And verse 15 says something remarkable. She did exactly what Elijah said. Verse 14 and 16. God is a loving God because he provides and rescues Elijah through the outsider because God has a heart for outsiders. That's not all. The true God is also not just a God of outsiders. He's also a living God. He's a living God. Look at verse 17. This little boy is getting sick. He breathes his last and tragically he dies. Verse 18. The widow picks him up. She picks him up, so to speak, and takes him in her arms to Elijah. I thought you came here with blessing. I'm sure she was thinking that. But actually you've come with judgment. You've come to punish me for my sins. Notice what she says in verse 18. Is this a reminder for my sins? Is this punishment? Is God mean and is he cruel? Is he giving me what I deserve? Or is it something revealing of his character, of uh, 
Is he capricious? Is this evidence for my sins? Am I getting what my sins deserve? And therefore, God says, your son will pay for your disobedience. Is this the result? Is this what's happening? Am I being punished for my bad deeds? She's processing what's happened in her home and the fact that her heart is being ripped apart by grief. Elijah gets to the upper room and puts the little boy down on the bed and looks up and she asks, and he asks rather the same question. Look at verse 18, look at verse 20. It's very important to see what she asks and what he asks. Verse 18, is this punishment for my sins? Elijah looks up to heaven, verse 20. Oh Lord, is it? Is this punishment for my sins? Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow by causing her son to die? It's the same question that she asks, now he asks. He doesn't know either. But here's what's so interesting as I've scratched my head on this this week. Neither the woman nor Elijah, on the one hand, has the temerity to say to God, you have no right to take my son, this boy's life. Neither of them says that as they process what's happening. Elijah does not say, God, how dare you do this? He says, verse 20, have you? Have you done this? Which means both of them are saying, God, you are a sovereign Lord. You might have done this. This might be from you. This might be a stroke of judgment. And if that's true, golly, is this a hard truth that's being taught to us this morning? When the widow meets Elijah, she knows the difference between the true God of Israel and all the other gods. Verse 1, I come from the God who lives, says Elijah. Verse 12, as surely as the Lord God who lives. She knows that the Lord God of Israel is the living Lord. But here's the hard truth that we'll see this week and throughout the story of Elijah and Elisha. What is a living God? And how is the living God different from any other God that we might be tempted to follow? Well, an idol. An idol is always something you project. An idol is a God that you have designed to, to fit your mind, to meet your needs. An idol is a God who's always under your control. An idol is a God who doesn't do things you don't understand. An idol is a God who doesn't do things you don't understand or who asks you to go places you never want to go. An idol that you have made will never ask that of you. An idol is a God that you have designed. But here's what the living God is. Here's who he is. Here's his character. You will never be following the living Lord unless he is able to cross your will, unless he's able to question you in a way that an idol never will. You know when you have the living Lord, when he says things you don't understand. You know that you're following the living Lord when he asks you to go places you don't want to go. You know you're following the God of the Bible when he says things you don't like, you don't understand, but you still serve him. You know you're following the living Lord when you have cancer and you have an operation on Thursday and yet you're still seeking to trust him. If you're not even willing to have a God who can tell you things you don't like, who can't contradict you and the plans you have for your life, then you know you're not following the God of the Bible. You're following an idol of your own imagination. You've got a decaffeinated God. 
you've got a God who's way too small. Because the God of Elijah and the God of the Bible is a God who's sovereign over all things. A God who is never accountable to us. We are always accountable to him. A God like that does not fit neatly into your mind. A God who's that big, who spoke stars into space, a universe and a cosmos that we're still exploring with a bigger telescope, a God who's that big can always break through our projections of what he's like. Here's a quote from a book that I've read with a few people this term. It's called Gentle and Lowly. The Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. Because the God of the Bible is way too big for us to comprehend. And that means he's big enough for us to worship and adore. Why didn't he kill the little boy? Why didn't God punish the little boy? Why didn't God didn't punish them for their sins? Well, here's the third point. Because our God is the stretched out God. Our God is the stretched out God. What do I mean? Now look at what's happening in verse uh, 17 and following to the end of the passage. The boy has died. Elijah is in the upper room and he does something very unusual. He stretches himself out on top of the little boy and he makes himself vulnerable. Elijah is literally on top of him. He stretches out his body over the little boy's body, making himself vulnerable. Now again, as I've scratched my head, as well, why does he do this? Why does he make himself vulnerable, Elijah? In uh, John 21, it says this. Jesus is speaking to Peter, and it's right at the end of his gospel. And he says, I tell you the truth, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and somewhere, someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus is talking to Peter about his death. Peter, so we're told, was crucified. And here's what Elijah is doing in 1 Kings 17. I think instinctively he's saying to God, God, would you take me instead of the boy? I will stretch out myself on top of this little boy who has died, but please would you take me farther than the little boy's life? And God didn't do it. And why did God not do it? Why did the God of the Bible answer the question that comes up in verse 18 and verse 20 twice? Who died for, my, for his sins? Did my son die for my sins? And God repeatedly says, I think, no, no. Your son did not die for your sins because my son will die for your sins. I will not take your life, Elijah, as vulnerable as you're making yourself on top of the boy who has died because my son will pay for your sins and for the sins of the world. My son is going to stretch out his arms. He's going to impart life to the whole world. My son is going to descend into the world and like Elijah, he's going to stretch himself out and he's going to cry out on the cross. And this is the reason... That you, mum, you, Elijah, do not have to pay for your son's sins or your sins. Because my son will die, not yours. And this miracle of oil and water and flour just pales into insignificance, as important as it is, because you have an, a resurrection story in the Old Testament. 
Friends, our God is unique. No other God, no other God, no other idol that is a pale imitation of God is a God of grace and at the same time is a God of judgment and is also a God of sacrifice. No other God is like that because no other God claims to have stretched out his arms for rescue. Did my son die for my sins, says the widow? No. But God from heaven says, my son will die for your sins, for the sins of your son and for the sins of the world. And he does it on a cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Now, if that's who the God of the Bible is, how do we serve him? Very quickly to summarize, how do we serve him? Three quick points. How do you serve the one true God? Number one, you live out your life with, with a humble poise. Verse 20, you live out your life with a humble poise. There's a tragedy that's happened in the life of this widow and in her home. She cries out to, uh, to the God of the Bible and Elijah comes and intercedes for her and a miracle is performed. But there is a, a, an unbelievable, hope-filled humility to Elijah. I mean, unless you have and know the God of the Bible, you will be rocked to and fro by the struggles that you experience in the darkness of this world. It takes a humility that only faith can deliver to look cancer in the eye and say, this stinks. I don't want to have cancer, but I trust God in the midst of it. It's so horrible to say that death is imminent, but I will trust God who is my hope in life and in death in the midst of it. Whatever you're facing, if you know Jesus, there is a humility that you see in the life of Elijah that there's no accusation that goes to the heart of heaven, but there is a solidity of trust that comes in a humble way. So he's not uh, dancing on air saying, God's going to do a miracle and all be well. Wipe away your tears, lady. There's no glibness to it, and neither is there accusations from the depth of despair. There's a, there's a humility in his heart because of the faith that he has in the God of the Bible. Do you know something of that in the darkness of this world and the disappointment of this world? Is there a humility that comes from the gospel in your heart and in your disposition? Here's the second thing. If you know the God of the Bible, the one true God, it gives you your humility, but also there's a conviction here to embrace the outsider. God could have saved Elijah in this famine through an extraordinary miraculous means in Israel. So why did he choose to, to say, get on your bike, put your sat-nav on, on top of your camel, whatever, walk, and get up north? I, think, I, thought, I thought the north is where trouble always came from throughout history. That's a father-in-law joke. My apologies. But this, it takes this woman, this outsider, it takes this outsider to be used by God to minister to God's servant. A stranger comes into her, his life a Gentile, a woman, an outsider. And how did Elijah find out who the true God really is? Through her. God used this woman to save him. Elijah literally embraced an outsider. He got involved with the poor and the dirty. He got involved with the needy. He got involved with people from a different culture, a different gender. And there he found God. There he experienced grace and provision. There he found grace. Are you prepared 
to walk through life, friends, with a humility that comes from the gospel, but also with a conviction to embrace the outsider, to open yourself up to people who are different from you, people with a different color skin, different social economic background, different education, different voice. You need the gospel to do that, friends. But also, paradoxically, when you do that, to the degree you do that, you find the gospel as you do it. You understand the gospel in a deeper way as you get out of your comfort zone and you minister to people in a humble way. Thirdly, quickly, finally, you need to see the resurrection. You need to see the resurrection. Look at the last line of the passage. 1 Kings 17, verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now I know. He'd been talking to her. She'd heard his words from his lips, but she needed a resurrection. If you're not a Christian here this morning, it's not enough to say, I will study the Bible and I'll follow Jesus. No. You need a resurrection in your life as well. Jesus came not to teach that you're just okay by yourself. Just look good on the outside. Just conform. Don't transform. Jesus came to die and to rise again in history to rescue you. It's not about conformity and respectability. And we need to hear that living in Epsom, surely. He didn't come to show yourself how to save yourself, because you can't. He came to rescue you. came to reach down into the muck and pull you up, because you can't yourself. You have to see the resurrection. The lady says, now I know. Christian friends, have you got people around you who you cared for? And they say to you something like this, if only I could, you know, you're you're thinking, if only I could show them the truth, if only I could teach them and just teach them more and more about God, then they would would understand. It's not just about understanding. They have to see the power of the resurrection. Do they see the power of the resurrection in your life? Do they see the fact that your hope in life and in death is Jesus? Or do they just see a religious person who's a respectable person rather than a transformed person. It's a very challenging word, isn't it? Are your love and your joy and your peace remarkable as you face the struggles of life? Do you know the one true God? Do you know him? Are you demonstrating the love of the one true God to others so they might come to know him? That's the question from Elijah, I trust, and from 1 Kings 17.